This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. I'm Linda Mottram. Both major political parties resorted to scare campaigns this week. Do they work or do they push frustrated voters towards independent candidates? We don't want to vote for the major parties. We're sick of their negativity. We're sick of, you know, how uninspiring and, and sort of small strategy they are. But on the other hand, we get very upset when there's a hung parliament. And as Russia begins a new offensive in eastern Ukraine, horrific stories emerge from the besieged city of Mariupol. First, though, China and the Solomon Islands signed off on a controversial security pact this week. It means China could set up a military base less than 2,000 kilometres from Australia's east coast. And that has put national security back on the federal election agenda. This represents the worst failure for Australian foreign policy in the Pacific since the end of World War II. On Scott Morrison's watch, our region has become less secure. I would be greatly concerned and I believe our Foreign Minister should be on the next plane to Solomon Islands to talk with the government to see what's actually been agreed. As the US has sent a high-level delegation to Honiara, the federal government decided not to dispatch Foreign Affairs Minister Maurice Payne. In the Pacific, one of the things you've got to be very, very cognisant of is there is a long history of, frankly, countries like Australia and even New Zealand and others coming around and treating Pacific Islands like they should be doing what the big countries should tell them to do. As both sides continue to trade blows about who is best to manage relations with China and the Pacific, the Solomons Prime Minister, Manasse Sogavare, insists the agreement is no threat to regional security, but it will allow China to deploy military, police and intelligence officers to the southwest Pacific. Well, Professor Anne-Marie Brady is an expert in Chinese politics at the University of Canterbury. So it's quite an extraordinary agreement and voices in the Solomons have said that this takes away our sovereignty and Sogavari had no right to secretly negotiate it, let alone secretly have it initialed and now secretly have it signed. And there's a lot of people in the Solomons not happy about that and not happy about the consequences of the agreement. Let's get to those consequences in a moment. But, I mean, Australia has offered policing assistance, security assistance to Solomon Islands in times of need when there's been trouble in the past. Is China now going to take over that role? Yeah. Australia and New Zealand and and also a number of Pacific Island governments have spoken up to Sogavari saying, what is the need? You know, you have a security agreement with Australia. You had Ramsey 2003 to 2017, where New Zealand and Australia had significant police and military forces there to help to bring the civil unrest down. And you have PNG and Fiji also provided support. So there is no need to bring in an external power. And that's, you know, the principles in the Pacific are collective security, collective decision making, because this new agreement that Sogavari has signed with the CCP government, it's not just a matter for the Solomons. It affects the security of the whole region. It's a really significant matter, and that's why our leading politicians have been speaking very explicitly about it and mentioning China by name, which is very unusual. 
Manasseh Sogavare, the Solomon's Prime Minister, insists that he's not planning a Chinese military base. Now, the idea of a military base has been sort of the headline fear that's grown out of this story. Some analysts say we can expect movement on a military base by the Chinese within weeks. On that particular issue, do you think it'll be that soon? Well, they don't have to call it a military base. They have a massive new PRC embassy that is empty. They don't have that many staff there. It's a country of 700,000 people. It's three stories and about a block long. It's bigger than any of the other embassies in Honiara. And so they can fly in the army and police and intelligence personnel and install them in their offices. And it's not called a base, it's called an embassy, but in effect it is a base. Now you mentioned the security implications for the wider Pacific. What what are they? Well, the archipelago of the Solomons, as well as the archipelago of the islands of New Caledonia, are really important for the security of the Pacific. So it's just as they were in World War II and, and also in colonial times, the great powers is interested in, in controlling some of these key islands because there are, are key straits on which our shipping lines travel. The Japanese hold on the Solomon Islands is being prized open by the guns of the US Navy. Stepping stones from which to re-win the South Pacific and start the push to Tokyo. And the Solomons and also New Caledonia guide the key strait that links the North Pacific all the way down to Antarctica. So if a hostile power controlled one of these strategically important islands in the Pacific, that would have a major impact on the security across the whole region because it could be used to blockade, to prevent New Zealand and Australian military forces going out, to prevent friendly forces coming in to defend us, to to blockade our shipping. And New Zealand and Australia and France and the US provide security across for the whole of the Pacific Island nations. And while governments change, geography does not. So the situation in the Solomons is not simply a matter for Prime Minister Sogavari to decide. It impacts on the security across the whole Pacific, which is why you have seen Fiji, Papua New Guinea and Tonga, along with Australia and New Zealand, speaking up publicly to Sogavari saying, please don't sign this agreement. And he's ignored everybody and signed it. The current Australian government has what it's called its Pacific Step Up Program. It's put quite a bit of effort into trying to bolster its position in the Pacific and and support among Pacific Islands for turning to Australia in times of need. Has that program been effective? Well, some of the optics of it have been undermined by the politics of your current government and their attitude towards climate change. You know, famously at a Pacific Island Forum meeting in Tuvalu, where your Prime Minister upset a lot of the Pacific Island Forum leaders who were there to come to an agreement about climate change in the Pacific. And so that's a problem, is sometimes the optics take over from actual helpful aid programs. And China's one of China's strategic goals is to change the geopolitical order in the North and South Pacific. And China has had the military capability and the economic capability to make changes in that. And they've been investing in the Pacific quite assiduously. Mm. So our countries are on the back foot with our Pacific 
New Zealand's got the Pacific reset, Australia's got the step up, Britain's got a policy similar. The US is supposedly, um, you know, has offered a larger aid package, but it's all not enough and it's a little bit too late. It's not to say it's impossible, but we need to move a lot faster and be more, and make some big adjustments in our approaches in yeah. countries like the Solomons. So how should Australia and the US now respond in really practical terms? What can the Western nations do on the ground to counter China's very often very visible aid contributions in sports stadiums and embassies and government buildings and so forth? Well, I think that the US, Australia, New Zealand and other um, partners can put more money into the provinces. Because of this Ramsey approach to Solomons, there's been a focus on the centre and there's been a fear that if you gave support to the provinces and to provincial leaders, that this would bring back that unrest and unravel the achievements of Ramsey. But I don't think that's the case. When you think about our own democracies, we have both central federal level power as well as authority at city level and at state level. So I think that Australia and New Zealand and the US need to lean into their regional aid efforts. There are lots of shovel-ready projects ready to go, but Sogavari holds the purse strings. Funding bodies can just directly work with local authorities. There's the legal setup to do so, and you've got local people willing to do so. And that is helpful because it rebalances. At the moment, you've got an over-concentration on one figure, and that's giving him more power than is healthy in a democracy. Professor Anne-Marie Brady from the University of Canterbury. Well, COVID restrictions continued to be dropped around the country this week, but the pandemic disrupted the election campaign after the opposition leader Anthony Albanese tested positive for the virus on Thursday. Before that announcement, the campaign had entered familiar territory, with both sides resorting to scare tactics. Another scare campaign based upon a lie, based upon the same untruths that they put forward during the 2019 campaign. And Anthony Albanese needs to come clean on this. It is an out-and-out disgusting lie. They've stoked fears about everything from cashless debit cards to the return of a carbon tax as the parties try to win over disinterested voters. So does a negative campaign work, or does it just drive voters towards the growing group of independents? Negative campaigning tends to turn voters off. So if we were in a normal voluntary system where we weren't compelled to go out and vote, what you would find is that it probably drives down voter turnout. In a compulsory system, it just makes us angrier. Dr Jill Shepherd is a politics lecturer at the Australian National University. So what we find at the moment is that even though we're quite happy to go out and vote, we're really frustrated. We're increasingly disappointed with the offerings of the two major parties. So as long as the two major parties continue in this sort of back and forth, this kind of mudslinging uh, campaign style, what they will find is that their primary vote continues to fall. Mm. Now, this has been a trend for at least 10 years in Australian politics. It seems like the major parties, frankly, aren't too worried about that. They keep getting the votes back at the end of election night via preference flows. 
this seems to be probably the short-term future of Australian political campaigns. Wow, we're locked in. Well, it's it's not totally predictable, though. I mean, this time round, we've got this new cohort of independents. They've been independents for years, of course, but this lot seem to be semi-organised, much more high profile in their push uh, and in lower house seats. They're being called the teal independents after the T-shirts most of them wear. Um, how are they different from independents we've seen in the past? The major difference with the current crop of independents is how well organised they are. They are fundraising in a systematic and really high stakes kind of way. They're not relying on the small donations that independents have in the past. They are operating for all intents and purposes like minor political parties. And that's a really new thing. Now, that's working great at the moment. It's it's winning them heaps of campaign coverage. It's certainly helping them to portray themselves as a cohesive professional unit of independents who can be trusted if they do get elected to parliament. What we'll see uh, potentially crack open is, you know, these potential ideological divides once they do get elected. Now, on that point, whether they are likely to get elected, you know, that still remains to be seen. The system in Australia is very much set up to protect the major parties from, you know, the incursion of outsiders. But I think what's been really interesting about this campaign is how uninteresting it is. It (laughs) it is so boring. It's very difficult to keep driving a narrative around such a, a small target dull campaign. And so these teal independents, they do provide some light and shade. They're talking about issues that the major parties just simply aren't, like climate change, like accountability and transparency and decision-making. All of the things that sort of bubble below the surface of Australian politics. They're not talking about jobs. They're not talking about healthcare or economic security or national security. Uh, they're talking about things that that otherwise just aren't making front page news. And I, I think that's a reflection on the state of the major party debate at the moment. So you mentioned it's quite hard for independents to get elected. How many of these do you think have a real chance? I mean, they're standing mostly in inner city seats held by Liberals, not all of them safe. Um, How hard is it for them to win? As someone who's been watching Australian politics for decades now, you know, I think it's it's very unlikely that any of them win. Saying that, you know, predictions are a, a fool's game. You know, I think in Goldstein, there does seem to be a genuine groundswell of support for someone like Zoe Daniel. These seats are really interesting because they have been jewels in the Liberal crown. You know, whether this is Wentworth, Warringah in New South Wales, uh, Goldstein, Higgins, Kuyong in Victoria, these are seats that the Liberal Party has taken for granted. And it has been expected among members of the party and voters in those seats that they would have a prime minister, right, that the treasurer, the the finance minister, the defence minister, these kinds of, of very high echelon politicians should be their local member. And what we've seen is that hasn't necessarily happened. And that's why I think Tim Wilson in Goldstein is particularly under threat, because he hasn't shown himself to be you know, the leading light, the potential Prime Minister, the Goldstein voters expect. Whether that actually can transfer into enough primary votes for Zoe Daniel to get her over the line remains to be seen. At the end of the election period, as we wake up on the 21st of May, most of us still revert to the same party for whom we have always voted in Goldstein, in Warringah, in Wentworth, that's usually to vote for the Liberal Party. So, so Zali Stegall, though, is pretty well entrenched in Warringah, isn't she, the independent there? 
Yeah, look, I would think so. What we see is that when independents do become the incumbent, they show that they are very effective lawmakers. They work cooperatively with other independents, with other major party members. Uh, They can be incredibly effective voices for their local community because they're not bound by uh, internal party discipline rules. They become the sort of gold standard MP. I think once independents get in, there's a real, you know, warning here for the major parties because they are better local members, they're more responsive local members and they're more popular local members than a major party local member can ever be. Okay, well, you described, for you know, trying to predict the outcomes here as, as a fool's errand, so let's be fools for a moment. What is, <laughs> what is the likely outcome? Are we going to see a hung parliament? And if so, what chance that we'll see independents helping to decide the next government? Because this doesn't happen very often in Australia, does it? We do have to get used to the idea of hung parliaments. As long as we turn away from the major parties, as long as we're more willing to put our primary vote in the hands of an independent or a minor party, we're going to get hung parliaments. And this is another sort of dimension on which Australian voters are really torn. We don't want to vote for the major parties. We're sick of their negativity. We're sick of, you know, how uninspiring and and sort of small strategy they are. But on the other hand, we get very upset when there's a hung parliament. In 2010, after Julia Gillard was elected with a minority government and spent those 17 days negotiating with the three independents for crossbench support, trust in the system, confidence in our politicians has never been lower. It really rattled us. What we saw, though, was that it was quite an effective government. And so we do have to get used to the idea of a hung parliament. Look, my hope is that there is a hung parliament because I think if Australian voters have more exposure to it, we'll see that just like around the world, hung parliaments, minority governments work really well. Okay, so if it's a hung parliament, isn't it obvious, given the issues that the independent teal independents are campaigning on, that they would want to work with Labor? Uh, I think the real fool's errand here is is not (laughs) making predictions about the outcome of voters. It's trying to predict what independent MPs will do because, you know, that feels like we're on safe ground saying that the independents would uh, support Labor over a Liberal government. I'm surprised that the Liberal government hasn't been talking about accountability, hasn't committed to a stronger ICAC or, or, you know, whatever they want to call it, but talking about accountability, committing to these kinds of reforms, you know, to just sort of get the independent candidates thinking that potentially a Liberal government would be okay. They haven't done that at all. And, and that feels really surprising to me. Uh, as long as the independents keep talking about accountability, it, it does really lock them into a Labor government over a Liberal government. But stranger things have happened. We will have to wait and see, which is a terrible answer, I know. But I think the narrative around a uh, a Liberal minority government and the, the kind of explanations and justifications that the independents would have to do in discussing their decision would be interesting to see because I'm not sure how they would necessarily do that. Could be fascinating times ahead. Jill Shepherd. thank you so much. I hope so. Thank you so much, Linda. <laughs> The war in Ukraine entered a new phase this week as Russia launched concerted attacks on the Donbass region in the country's east. The National Security Council is saying Russia appears to have begun its long-anticipated new offensive in the east of the country along front lines around Donetsk, Luhansk and Kharkiv. 
large proportion of the Russian army is now focusing on the east and the governor of the Luhansk region has now confirmed that Russian troops have taken control of the city of Krimina. We can assess now that the Russian troops have begun the battle for Donbass, for which they have been preparing for a long time. And in the besieged port city of Mariupol, time is running out. There's been weeks of relentless shelling there. The last of its fighters are holed up in the Azov-style steel plant, among them members of the ultra-nationalist Azov Battalion, which Russia has pledged to destroy. Their food and supplies are running out, but they have refused to surrender. Well, on Thursday, Russia's President Vladimir Putin ordered his troops not to storm the plant. Blockade it, he told his defence minister, so that not even a fly can escape. More than a 1,000 civilians are thought to be sheltering with soldiers in the plant. Another 100,000 more civilians are trapped and starving in the ruined city. When we saved uh, my parents out out from there and uh, they have seen photos from Bucha, they said, oh, in Mariupol it was much worse, uh, you can imagine. More bodies on streets, more people killed in their apartments, more people killed in basements. Dmitro Gurin is a Ukrainian MP. He's from Mariupol and he's been helping its residents. And uh, now Russian troops are trying to clean the mess. They're trying to clean evidences of their war crimes. These bodies, uh, they're disappearing from streets. And uh, now we don't know where they're transporting them. The whole my neighborhood is destroyed. My uh, house where I grew up, uh, it's nine stories uh, building, 200 apartments. Uh, it's uh, totally burned. It was shot by tanks several times. And uh, the, the, the soccer field where I played soccer in my uh, childhood, it's cemetery now. And But uh, they dig it. They dig it, and uh, now it's no more crosses and no, no more bodies inside. So they are cleaning the evidences of their war crimes. And asking about uh, what has happened in Bucha and about Mariupol, I think the most important is uh, the civilians on Azovstal manufacturing plant, because most of them are families of Ukrainian soldiers. And uh, uh, as you know, Russian propaganda during eight years brainwashed the audience and brainwashed Russians that Mariupol is a Nazi nest. Azov is Nazis and uh, all of this. And uh, we understand that th- these uh, civilians on uh, Azov style, uh, they are really in the, in the highest risk because uh, by their propaganda in, in the Russian uh, uh, world, the Nazis, they are not, not people, you know, mm-hmm. they are, they are un- unhumanized. So mm-hmm. all of these uh, women and children, they're not humans. And uh, we understand after seeing what has happened in Bucha and Borodanka, that these women, these children, they will be raped and they will be killed. And uh, that's a really cruel and uh, it's hard to imagine. Yeah. Now, in terms of the city more broadly, evacuations have been taking place, but it seems that as many as 100,000 people are still stuck in the city, civilians. What are your fears for them? What do you think will happen? I think uh, the same thing uh, will happen that happens now. 
Russia blocked humanitarian corridors from the first day they announced it. I remember because my parents were in Mariupol that time. The first day they uh, said we are opening humanitarian corridors and they shoot and uh, bombarded the place of a gathering uh, of people that were ready to go to these uh, buses. So the Russia never really opened green corridors. People now heavily deported, forcibly deported to the territory of Russia. And it's, it's reality because I just helped uh, the woman I know, she's 73 years old, to evacuate from Russia. She was deported from Mariupol to the border of Kazakhstan to the Russian territory. And from there, we evacuated her through the Russian territory to Estonia and, and uh, then to another European country. She is safe now. So I'm, I have this history, you know, firsthand. The deportations will continue. They will block humanitarian corridors to the Ukrainian territory. And uh, they will continue siege of Azovstal plant, and uh, they will not let go civilians from uh, Azovstal territory. Dimitro, I have to ask you about rescuing that 73-year-old woman. I mean, she'd been deported to Russia, you say. How did you get her out? The, the Russians surely don't want those people, Ukrainians, to leave Russia. Oh, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. They get these people. Russia, destroy your house. Then uh, they come to you and say, you will go with us and we will transport you to the Russian territory. All you just will go to the streets. So you have to leave. They force you. And uh, after this, uh, they they asking you uh, during an hour. She was asked by three military men. But have she uh, seen? Is she connected with army? Are there soldiers in their family? And all these questions. They filter people and uh, they check, uh, for example, if people have uh, tattoos with uh, Ukrainian symbols, coat of arms. Uh, she said uh, that uh, when they filter it, people, uh, that they found one guy with a Ukrainian coat of arms on, on his arm. And he was just, oh, let's go with us. Uh, and he disappeared. And she, we all, we don't know what, uh, what, what's going on with these people. So it's filtration camps. And uh, then she were just put to the train and uh, transported to the border of Kazakhstan. Uh, and she saved her passport. It was a miracle. And uh, that's why we could evacuate her from Russian territory to the European Union territory. If Mariupol falls, it would be a rare victory for Moscow. How much of a blow would it be for Ukrainian morale? Frankly speaking, until it happens, you never know. Uh, because everybody thought that after Russian attack, uh, Ukraine will fall uh, during three days because of morale. Because we don't want to fight. And we see what happened in reality. I think that, of course, it will be really hard for us. Because uh, Mariupol uh, uh, defenders, the symbol now, and the symbol of resistance and they're iron mans they are really iron mans what they're doing is far beyond heroic and we all want them to to survive and uh, as you know president zelensky several times said to them that uh, they can put their arms but it's their decision to to fight it's their decision to defend their civilians their families the bodies of their friends uh, and the injured so i think if uh, Mariupol falls, and if our defenders of Mariupol dies, I can't imagine, you know, a diplomatic decision after, after this. What Zelensky says is that if you just destroy all the people in, in uh, Azovstal, any negotiations will not be possible. I think that Ukrainian society sees the situation the same way. 
Dmitro Gurin, he's a Ukrainian MP. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe. And while you're there, you might want to check a new weekday podcast with Samantha Hawley. It's called ABC News Daily. This week is produced by Madeline Jenner, Eleanor Whitehead and me, Linda Maltram. Have a good weekend. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.